Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. Let me give you a little background to the New Testament book we're going to be reading for today. I have to give you this background because it's not Luke. <laughs> as many of you know, last week we finished the Gospel of Luke after two and a half years, so maybe it was time to find another place. Um, I don't know if you realize there are other books in the Bible. Or maybe you think, I didn't realize there are other books in the Bible. In any case, today we find ourselves reading from 2 Timothy, which is one-third of what is referred to as the pastoral letters. The pastoral letters are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, the reason why they are called this is because they were all three written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors. So two letters to Timothy in Ephesus, one letter to Titus in Crete. Now the entire Christian faith at this point in which Paul is writing is only about 30 years young. And so new churches and new pastors are about all there are. These Two pastors and their churches need mentoring. And barring any word from the Lord Jesus himself, who better to serve as a mentor than the Apostle Paul? These three letters, by the way, are just as every bit important to us today as, it, as they were 2,000 years ago. Because taken together, these three letters address the church's role in a changing society. These three letters taken together address the church's responsibility to the poor and the disenfranchised, the church's response to cults and spiritual lifestyle and leadership and authority and discipline in the church, and how the Christian message is so important, so vital to be proclaimed in this world because there are so many competing false messages. Our focus today is on the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, and at that, only the first 14 verses. Here's a little bit more background to this particular letter. Paul is in prison in Rome when he pens this letter. And this second letter to Timothy is believed to be the last thing Paul writes before he is put to death. Timothy, meanwhile, is living and ministering in Ephesus where there is large-scale opposition to him and the church from false teachers, where there is large-scale persecution to him and the church from religious and civil authorities. So Paul writes in his mentoring role, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy first appears in Scripture recorded in Acts chapter 16. Let me take us there just so you see how we hear about Timothy to begin with. Paul came to Derby. Just right down the street, he was. And then to Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor at the time, 
where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer. So in other words, she believed in Jesus, but whose father was a Greek. That's the only description we have of Timothy's father. We presume then that he is not a believer. Well, if we were to keep reading Acts chapter 16, we would discover that Paul then immediately takes Timothy on with him for his missionary journeys. Back to the story. As he writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. It seems that we cannot understand Timothy nor his faith apart from people in his life. In just the first five verses, there are three ways in which Timothy is described. In relation to the Apostle Paul, who refers to him as my dear son. In relation to his grandmother Lois and in relation to his mother Eunice. These two men, by the way, Paul and Timothy, couldn't be more opposite in the way in which they came to faith. Maybe, like some of you, the conversion of Paul, that story is so dramatic. From one who cared nothing about Jesus, in fact, was opposed to Jesus and everyone who believed in Him, to one who becomes completely sold out for Jesus. The story is famous. Paul, then Saul, on his way to Damascus to arrest and possibly have killed any number of Christians, when all of a sudden Jesus shows up and drops him to his knees, blinded by a brilliant light. Needless to say, his life is forever changed. Maybe some of you have had a dramatic conversion. But I suspect most of us, and as I have gotten to know you, I believe most of us would be in this category. Our testimony is more like that of Timothy, who grew up in a believing home and may never really have had a time in his life where the things of Jesus and the things of the church weren't important to him. That was certainly the case of me and my siblings growing up. We had to be on our deathbed to miss church on Sunday mornings. I'm hearing some of you and probably shaking heads of people in your household that same way. Regardless of how you come to faith, the important thing is that you come to faith. And as I indicated, infant baptisms, there has to be a time when that young person grows to believe in Jesus for themselves, that they have to say yes to God. Now, here's another interesting thing I find. The Apostle Paul's story of his conversion is shared several times in the New Testament. But never does he say, unless you have an experience exactly like mine, can Jesus be real to you? He never says, well, the, 
What I remember, the last thing that I saw before I was blinded is I was standing on that road on my way to Damascus, and there was a certain tree over here. I just remembered it was a weird-shaped tree, and there was a rock formation over here. So if you'll come with me, and we go back to that road in Damascus, and I think if we stand about, I think I was, I was right here, then maybe Jesus will come to you. He never gives that indication. His faith was real. Timothy's faith was real. To this story of which we're reading, we can't talk about Timothy without talking about the people in his life. The same is true for us. We have all, on any number of occasions, felt the influence of people in our lives. Here we are on Mother's Day. Think of the influence they've had on your life. What about a grandmother, an aunt, a teacher, a neighbor? And just because it's Mother's Day, we don't have to just consider female influences on our lives. The point of today is that we're all meant to live lives of influence and impact. So think about any influence on your life, male or female. What legacy did someone leave for you? How did you discover your gift? Someone probably told you, you're good at that. How did you learn that certain skill? Chances are, someone showed you how to do it. Paul goes on. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, His prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, what is it about this message, this gospel message, that is so worth sharing that it is passed down from grandparent to parent to child, and not only so worth sharing, but so worth suffering for? First, the gospel is the message about a God, Paul says, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. First, He has saved us. That has everything to do with the cross of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4.12, we are told that there is salvation in no one else. You see, God is holy and perfect. And in His presence, sin cannot exist. We're sinners. That's a problem. We cannot exist in God's presence. We'll never be good enough. So God does something about it. Jesus Christ steps off the throne and enters human history to die on the cross in our place for our sins. He has saved us. And second, He has called us to a holy life. Now this is where when we start investigating that about ourselves gets a little hard, a little uncomfortable. Paul doesn't say, now you're called to a perfect life, but a new way of living, God's way. 
where our highest priority is about what honors Him. So let me ask you, are you honoring God in the way you pursue your relationships? Are you honoring God with your finances? What about your attitude at work? What about when you face problems, trials, struggles? Are you hopeful or automatically driven to despair? What about when you face opposition because you've taken a stand for Christ? Does God still get the glory? Or is it more like, God, I was doing this thing for you. How come I'm getting the brunt of stuff? Paul says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. God is the one who initiates this relationship. It was His own purpose, Paul writes, and it comes by means of grace. The gift of faith that you and I have in Jesus comes by means of grace. So there is nothing to earn, nothing to buy. Because of what God accomplished in Jesus Christ, we are able to live lives in close relationship with God. To be able to experience Him and enjoy Him, not from afar, but as the God who walks with us in this earthly life. You see, ours is the only God who stoops to our level. Every other religion is about trying to be good enough to appeal to and appease their God. And that's part of why Christianity in our culture is fraught with struggles from those outside of the faith looking at us. Because Christianity is distinct and unique. It's not inclusive. It's not about all paths. Which brings us to the third point, which is the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus is not one among many. He is not a way. He is the only way. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're a Christian church. Of course, we're going to promote Jesus Christ and him alone as the bringer of the good news of the gospel. Seems pretty basic and remedial, doesn't it? But here's the big idea. We should remember that in Ephesus, there were plenty of false teachers who had taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ. And I find it interesting. In the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, are seven letters written by John through our Lord Jesus Christ, written on Jesus' behalf, to seven churches. Anyone want to guess who the recipient of that first letter is? What's the destination? It's Ephesus. And the letter to Ephesus opens with several things for which Jesus commends them. Their hard work, their perseverance, their testing of false teachers. And then he says, yet I hold this against you. 
You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken your first love. They may be doing a lot of good things, but they've forgotten for whom they're doing them. And it goes on in that letter to say they are in danger of losing the light of Jesus. They are in danger of being a church that no longer is a light to the lost world, but a church that is simply going along with the ways of the world. That's a problem. For you see, it's all about Him. The good news is all about Jesus. It's Jesus that saves. That means the good news is not about strict adherence to rules. The good news is not about human ability or effort. It is only through Christ's work on the cross that new life is made possible. And that's point number four. Paul says it is Jesus Christ who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims the ultimate solution to the human crisis. You see, ever since sin entered the world, we all die. Now, when Paul says that Jesus destroyed death, he doesn't mean that we're all being cryogenically preserved somehow. What he means is, because of Jesus Christ, because of His resurrection, Jesus has destroyed the grip that death would have on us. Death has lost its power because this life is not all there is. Some people believe in reincarnation, so you try this life again and again and again until you get it right. But we'll never get it right. Sin will always be a problem. Some people believe that when we die, we just simply cease to exist, as if there's nothing that awaits us. Instead, what Jesus offers and what Jesus brings is eternal life that is free from all the hardships of this life. No more sin, no more shame, no more suffering. And that's what the world needs to know. And that's what Paul goes on to say. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, somebody who is going to deliver this message. And an apostle and a teacher. What the world needs are churches who take seriously the command to be about the business of disciple-making. For what we have now more than ever are entire communities searching for answers. What's more, searching for meaning in their lives. We need more churches, hopefully like this one, who will open the doors, not on the promise that we have all the answers, but that we'll do our best to point you to the one who does. Not on the promise that we're perfect, but that we'll do our best to point you to the one who is. Maybe what folks around us need most is to see that Christian witness that says, you know what? We know something. We know that evil and darkness and sin and even death don't have the last word. Jesus Christ does. 
And Jesus Christ gets to pronounce that last word on our lives because he went to the cross for the right to do it. In his body on the cross, Jesus absorbed all the sin, all the evil, everything that Satan could throw at us so that we don't have to. But we couldn't anyhow. We can't absorb it. He can. And he did. Jesus Christ saves us. That's why he is our Lord and Savior. So Paul concludes, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Because of his belief, because of his sharing that belief. Yet this is no cause for shame. Because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Despite the scandal of the cross in the first century, it was a scandal. Jesus died on a cross. To the Roman and Jewish way of thinking, who are the people that die on a cross? They're criminals. And so Christians, these newfound Christians, who are they following? Who are they believing in? Somebody who died on a cross as a criminal, despite the scandal of the cross in the first century world, despite his imprisonment, despite the bitter opposition from false teachers, the Apostle Paul is not deterred, and he is certainly not despairing. Why? Because of his own strength of character to get him through? No. Because he is absolutely convinced of the power of the gospel to bring new life. Friends, do you need some encouragement? Do you need to know the possibility of a new life? Then give your life over to Jesus Christ. All you have to do is invite Him in. The promise of the Bible is that He will come in. You know somebody who needs encouragement? Someone who needs to turn their life over to Christ? Then invite them to discover for themselves what an awesome Lord and Savior Jesus is. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.